Haggai chapter 1 is where we're going to be for this session. Do you have a list of things that you hope to accomplish one day? Call it a bucket list, maybe? Things you want to experience before you leave the earth? Like, I've never been to the Holy Land. Like, I really want to go to the Holy Land. I've never had a chance to make it there. I've almost been there, but trips were canceled. I want to go to the Holy Land. Or maybe you say, I've always wanted a Chevy Silverado. All right? Uh, Or maybe you say, I want to take my kids on a trip to see the Grand Canyon, whatever it is, or my grandkids. I think we all have things in our mind that, that we put on what I call our someday maybe list. Someday, maybe I'm going to do that. Uh, other, other times I've talked just with church people and they say, you know, someday I'm going to start tithing. You know, 80% of church people don't tithe. They tip. They tip. They, they give 20 bucks, 50 bucks. They don't actually tithe. The statistics are staggering that if you follow the biblical example of tithing, 80% of people who attend a church don't follow the biblical model of giving. Someday I'm going to do that, though, some people say. It's also amazing to me as a pastor how many people have walked with the Lord for years and they've never been baptized. Just, man, I don't like being in front of people. I don't like water. I'm good. And yet Jesus says one of the first things you're supposed to do when you follow Jesus is to get immersed in front of people and proclaim by a living act that you belong to Jesus. Someday I'm going to get baptized, people say. Someday I'm going to start using my spiritual gifts in the church. I'm going to stop being a consumer. I'm going to give back. When the timing is right, I'm going to do that. Someday I'm going to reconcile with my sister. She and I haven't spoken for years, and I need to do something to mend that relationship. We we all have things like this. There are things that we know we ought to be doing, and someday I'm going to get this. But here's the line that I want to begin with. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And if you're a parent, you know this to be true. If you tell your kid, I want you to take out the trash, and he does it next Thursday, that's wrong. He did it, but he delayed it, and in doing so, he didn't obey. We do the same thing with God all the time, don't we? There's nobody in this room that's not guilty of this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When God tells you to do something, he normally means now. And yet we put it on a someday maybe list. I love this ancient book of Haggai. We discover a fascinating story here in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, let me just set the context. And then we're going to, this is a really practical session. So we're going to dive deep in the Old Testament. We're going to come up for, for air. But the people of God, Israel, have been living for decades as exiles in a foreign land called Babylon when this book takes place. That was God's doing because they were disobedient, but, but God had, had put them out of their homeland. But shockingly, the king of that land says, I'm going to allow some people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild most of the Jews said I'm good I'm going to stay here my whole life's here we've set up a new way of living we have a house we have a business we're not going back but 50,000 of them said we'll uproot our lives again we'll move back to Jerusalem we'll help rebuild the holy city we call those people today courageous missionaries so the people that went back to the holy city these were not your nominal kind of back row sitting Baptists I mean these are the people that will go out on the mission field they were spiritually strong People. And I'm saying that because what happens to them can happen to any of us. So let me look how, how the book begins in verse 2. The Lord of armies, that's God, he says this. These people who have moved back here, they say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So the temple was in shambles and God wanted them to rebuild the temple. 
The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. And the Lord laid it on their hearts to build the temple for worship, but the people procrastinated. And in this passage, uh, we get three lame excuses for why people delay doing exactly what God tells them. And, and we'll relate to all these, all of us will. So if you've studied the history of what happened, um, the honeymoon period in Haggai didn't last long. They move back. These people get rooted. They, they take up an offering. There's enough money to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation. But then political troubles happen. The government becomes unstable. All these external things happen, and they put the project on hold, and they say, someday we're going to get back to it. And they never got back to it, so God confronts them on the issue. How many things? Think about this. In your life, can you say, I, I started something and I didn't finish it and I need to go back and I need to pick that up? How many things? So I'll just tell you this. I, I am the president of one of the largest Christian resources companies in the world and I am the worst at leading family devotions. Um, I, I really struggle leading my family in devotions. I can stand up here and teach this way easier than I can have my four teenagers. There's an infamous story in my, in my house on the day that dad lost his mind in family devotions. Are you ready for this? I come, into, I come into the experience already feeling insecure. I don't feel like I'm good at this. I can't draw teenagers out. And I start teaching a passage of scripture and they're totally checked out. And I get angry. And I begin to scold them because they don't pay attention. They don't care about spiritual things. They're probably not Christians. I'm that mad. Jesus said, you'll know them by the fruit that you bear. You guys don't care about this. You're not Christians. Get out of here. It was that kind of tone. And my wife was just appalled that I took that tone with the kids. And when I took a step back and I realized what was going on, I was so afraid that I was failing them because of my own fear, my own insecurity, that I took it out on them. And so for, for a long time, I took family devotions and I just put them on the shelf because it was too hard for me to lead my family spiritually. And so we all have things that happen to us and important things get put on a shelf and, it take, and sometimes years go by and they're still on the shelf. And I would guess that there's some of you in this room that God's been talking to you for a while about getting back to X and, and you've been putting it off and it's time. It's time. So here are three reasons that people give. It was, this is as old as the Old Testament on why people put off the things of God. Number one, they call it a timing issue. A timing issue. So back in Haggai, he said, you know, is, it, is this a time for you to build your own paneled houses while mine lies in ruins? And they said, yeah, it's just not the time. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a challenging verse about the danger of waiting to the right time to take action. It's Ecclesiastes 11.3. Look at this verse. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. It's a farming illustration. There's a farmer. He's out in the field. He knows he's got to get his work done. He's got to get this thing plowed. He's got to get this thing seeded. And yet, it's looking kind of cloudy. So, you know what? I'm not even going to get started. It's not going to be a good day for it. It's bad timing. We all, we do this. We wait till the perfect time to start something. And guess what? The perfect time never comes. And so as long as we have that mentality that someday I'm going to get to this thing, it's just bad timing. Let's just go ahead and call it what it is. Total cop out. 
you're using it as a total cop-out. Recently, I've been, I've been super convicted about this. You guys heard my story about being a church planner. For, for five or six years, my whole life was reaching non-religious, unchurched, secular people. It was my passion. It was my life. Then I moved to Nashville and started leading this Christian discipleship company, and all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by Christians all day long. I'm inside the bubble. And the thing that I've always said to people, and now is becoming true of me, is that we start out as fishers of men, but we become keepers of the aquarium. It happens so easily. What is it about us that the longer we walk with Jesus, the less we speak of him? So I moved back to Nashville, and I am super convicted about the fact it has been a long time since I had a spiritual conversation with somebody who's far from God. And I keep saying, here's what I keep saying to God. God, I'm trying to turn this company in a new direction. It's a timing issue. Someday I'm going to care about lost people. Even though Jesus said, the reason I came to earth is to seek and save the lost, I think I should take the cue that that should be why I'm on the earth, to seek and save the lost. So I, I shared this. We had this thing in Denver called the impact card that we, every, if you joined our church, you received your impact card. Every single member of the church, if you're a member, you're a missionary on your street. You've been called to reach your street. I don't pass through your street. You pass through your street. I'm going to equip you to do that. And so... If you joined, this was our membership class. So here's what we want you to do now that you're a member. We want you to write down on one side of this card three, the names of three people who have no business being in your life. They're relationships of proximity. You never would have chosen them. It's the person one cubicle over that you wish worked somewhere else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, community is when the person you least want to be there is always there. Or it's a barista at Starbucks. It's someone that God keeps bringing into your life, but for whatever reason, there's this kind of connection. And it's a divine encounter. And you're not paying attention to it. So we, we thought if we could open people's eyes to the people all around them, that it would change the way that they viewed evangelism. So we just said, hey, write the names of three people that you want to impact for Christ this year. Just their first name is fine. And then second of all, here's three things you want you to do. Number one, start praying every week for those people by name. You're probably the only person on the planet interceding for them, and there's power in prayer. Number two, take an active interest in their life. And when I say active interest, it should be on your calendar. You have a schedule for when you meet with them. You're going to get coffee with them next month. Number three, over time, Find a way to share your spiritual story. People think uh, sharing your testimony is trying to close the deal on getting someone converted. A big part of, of being a witness, just think about the word witness, is to just testify to what God, you've seen God do in your life. If you could just have three people in your life, you're looking for an opportunity to testify what God has done in your life, you're 99% you're further than most Christians. So I taught this for five years. It was my whole life. And then I get to, to Nashville, Tennessee, and I get neighbors that, that don't like to hang out. And one of them is a, is a really nice Indian man named Pravin. And, and I see him in the driveway every day. And I became so convicted about the fact that I didn't know this guy. I said, hey, Pravin, I texted him. I'd love to take you to coffee sometime. And I, I took Pravin to coffee, coffee a couple of months ago, and we sat down, and we began to swap stories. And he said this to me. He said, I'm really glad you reached out. I need friends. See, here's the deal. When you enter into doing life with people, you're in into the God zone. 
God is already at work behind the scenes in their lives. You're just showing up to a work that's already in progress. So when you take an active interest in a person, you're taking an active interest in, in somebody that God's already actively interested in. So you're just watering a seed that's already down there in their hearts. And I bring this up because um, I believe that many Christians have put evangelism on the shelf or they've said there's certain people gifted for that. That's not true. Everybody in this room can do evangelism if you want to. Lifeway Research, we have a research arm that just does thought leadership for churches, and we recently interviewed a 1,000 pastors. What are the biggest needs that you have right now post-pandemic? 75% of the pastors says, the most urgent need I'm feeling in my church is our church does not want to hang out with unchurched people. They want to get together. Churchy people want to become more churchy. And that's great. Sanctification is a part of spiritual growth, but we can't get them to hang out with their neighbors or spend time with people who are far from God. How are we going to impact the community? And so I think that this is one of those issues that many Christians say, hey, someday I'm going to get to that. I know it's easy for me to do that. Maybe that's not the issue for you, but what is something that God's been saying to you? Someday you need to get to that. Stop calling it a timing issue. It's that you just don't make it happen. Now, there's a second reason that people put off the things of God, and it's just it's seen in verse 5. Verse 5, now the Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but you never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but you never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. What's God saying here? He's describing a life that looks busy, but it's actually empty. It looks full, but it's actually vacuous. The people were putting in long days and many hours. They were going to bed tired, but they were not accomplishing anything for the kingdom. As the old saying goes, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. It happens to all of us. So the second reason that people put off the, the things of God is that we confuse activity for accomplishment. We confuse activity for accomplishment. Verse six says that they were eating, but they were still searching for more food. They were putting on more layers of clothes, but they couldn't keep warm. They were making more money, but it felt like the, bags of co the bag of coins had a hole in it. And this is describing uh, an experience where we're busy, but we're not really busy about the things that God wants us to be busy about. So do you ever have an experience in reading, maybe I'm the only one, where you'll, you'll read a chapter and then right at the end of a page you'll realize, I have no idea of anything I just read in the last three pages. <laughs> the reason that happens is that your eyes were seeing the words, but your mind was not engaged. That's not reading, that's called staring at words. But you feel good because people see you looking at a book, so you must be reading. I think sometimes in life, God sees that happening inside of us. We, we have the appearance of being productive, but in reality, we're really not getting anything done for the kingdom. Haggai was calling this out in the people. He was saying they were active, they were busy, but they were not engaged in the things that the Lord wanted them to do. The old commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, I like what he writes here. Is this not a picture of our age? More cars, more houses, more furniture, more food, more television sets, more games, more vacations, yet people are wretchedly unsatisfied. People have everything, but they're miserable. As some of those miserable people are so-called 
evangelical Christians. What is the cause of this? It's the work of God. God has sent emptiness so that this people might awake from their idolatry and turn back to him. And I've never seen this psalm before. He says, Psalm, psalm 106, verse 15. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. And I think there have been seasons in my life where I've been really busy, and yet there was a leanness in my soul. Um, another thing that I've noticed is that it's easy for me to be around people, but not with people. And you ask, well, what's the difference? It's, it's actually quite easy to be very lonely in a crowded room. And so, like, with my, with my family, sometimes I count it as points on the board if I'm home at night, even though I'm completely disengaged from the family. I'm home at night. And it's a way for me to feel good about myself, even though there was no meaningful fruit of me being home. So we confuse activity for accomplishment. But then there's a third reason, and then I'll get to some practicalities. Look at verse 9. So you expected much, but it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, God says, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on people and animals, on, on all that your hands produce. God himself says, I am ruining your life. I am actively messing with you. I am making your work produce nothing. I'm now coming against you. Why? Because I've been telling you for a long time to do this and you're not doing it. So God disciplines those he loves, just like a father disciplines his sons. God is now actively working against me until I slow down and wake up and realize that he's trying to tell me something, but I'm too busy doing my thing. So the third reason that people uh, put off the will of God is we convince ourselves that there's no accountability. We actually think God doesn't see what's happening. He, he's, not going to, he's not going to do anything about it. Sure that he wants me to do family devotions, but he's not going to do about anything about it if I don't. Oh, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that if you are disobedient, if you are not listening to the Holy Spirit, he will begin to introduce pain into your life because pain is a, a powerful tool of getting one's attention. C.S. Lewis used to say that God whispers to us in our pleasure. He shouts to us in our pain. And so Hebrews 12 is a great passage for you to go and study on your own. But Hebrews 12 says, While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it is, it's going against the grain. But later, of course, it pays off big time. That's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. I love that. Discipline, discipline pays off big time later on in your life. So uh, how the passage ends in verse 12 is uh, it's, a good, it's a good ending to the story. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, and the entire remnant of the people, look what they did. They obeyed the Lord their God 
and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent them. So the people feared the Lord. To fear the Lord is to acknowledge God in every area of your life. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So I talk to uh, pastors a lot on this subject because, believe it or not, pastors are a unique breed. They pour their whole life into the church, just like you pour your whole life into your job. And before long, there's nothing left of them. Pastors have a really hard time having a church and a life. And you probably can relate to that. If you're passionate about what you do on a daily basis, maybe the craft God's called you to, it's really difficult to have a career and a life. But the healthiest people, the healthiest pastors I know, they are intentional about building this thing called a life. Well, what is in a life? As I've listened and observed and paid attention to guys, there's four buckets that healthy people fill on a, on a regular basis. These are priorities for them. These aren't just things that are like, maybe someday I'll get to it. No, these are priorities. And it's these four things. And I just want you to think about the bucket that you are the worst at. It's uh, every day you got to fill the bucket of health, the bucket of hobbies, the bucket of family, and the bucket of friendship. Now, let me, let me hit, hit these and kind of get you stirred up, and then we can have some group discussion here in just a moment. Let's, let's, um, let's talk about health. When we think about health, there's three different, kinds, three different kinds of health, spiritual, emotional, and physical. So here are questions that come at all of us. Am I spiritually healthy? Am I growing in, in Christ-likeness? Am I pursuing humility? Am I enjoying prayer? These are questions around spiritual health, emotional health. Do I continue to say yes to more things than I can handle? Am I being vulnerable with anybody? Am I accountable to anybody? Is anybody asking me hard questions? Am I unwilling to forgive someone? These are emotional questions. Am I physically healthy? You'd be amazed. 59% of pastors in recent surveys said, I'm feeling very convicted about my body. It's a, it's a big deal. I'm not taking care of myself physically. 59% of pastors who are, are trying to model health before their churches. Am I weight training? Am I, am I getting enough fresh air? Is my life balanced? Am I eating balanced meals? When my wife looks at me, does she see a guy that is, has given up? Or does she a guy, see a guy that's going down fighting physically? Because we know the curse is on all of us. As we get older, we're not in as good shape, but are we fighting? Are we trying to stay physically strong? So I don't know about you, but I, I'm always challenged to do better at health. It's hard to stay healthy. Second is hobbies. Am I an interesting person to be around? When I'm at a table full of people and the conversation gets thin, do I have anything to bring to the table besides my job? So I, I am actually not good at hobbies. Um, I'm, I'm a recovering workaholic. But the people I know who have lives that I want, they have these things called hobbies that they enjoy. Uh, so, what are yours? Like, think back to who you were before you were even married, when it was just you doing your thing. Are there some things back there you used to do that, you know, why don't you do them anymore? Cycling, woodwork, golfing, uh, recreational activities. Look, just think about the word recreational, recreate. It recreates you. 
There are certain activities that all of us have that when we do them on a regular basis, they recreate us. We're better for people around us when we're doing them because they bring us back to life. We ignore those things to our own peril. They're part of what it means to be human. Recently, I read a book called The CEO Next Door. It was a helpful read on the qualities of effective CEOs. I'm still learning the job. One of the chapters involved the danger of identity theft. Don't let your job steal your identity. And the author told the story about a CEO named Don meeting another far more successful CEO, Ted, for an early morning meetup. The two men had planned to connect in the lobby, ride together to a high-level meeting of VIPs. Don was astounded when Ted showed up in a bright red Hawaiian shirt. He said to him immediately, Ted, you can't wear that to the meeting. You can't go into a meeting with a shirt like that. And I read from the book now. Ted cut him off. Let me ask you a rhetorical question, Don. Are you an interesting person? The answer is no, you are not. (laughs) In fact, I think you're the most boring person I've ever met. I know you had hobbies when you joined this firm, but this job has sucked them all out of you. That's a problem. I'm a musician. I play the French horn. I like to sail my sailboat. What have you done that isn't work-related? Why should people even want to be around you? These are questions that all of us should ask ourselves. And the author goes on to make a point. If you become a hollow husk of a human being, you burn out fast, but that's not the worst of it. You can't effectively lead if people don't see signs that there's a person behind the title. Protect your identity from theft. Invest time in nurturing aspects of yourself that are unrelated to your job or your status. That's a hard one. Maybe some of you are really good at hobbies. I was sitting at breakfast with Taylor, who's leading worship. And Taylor is one of those guys, there you are in the back. He's got a thousand hobbies and it drives his wife crazy, but I'm at, I admire you. Because I think a lot of guys lose hobbies. It's what makes life fun and worth living. It makes you better for your family and your job. How are you doing with hobbies? Number three is family. Do I take ownership of my family? And when I say family, my extended family. Am I skirting responsibility? Am I unwilling to have hard conversations with family? But I'm plenty willing to do that at work. I'll do it at work because it affects my status. I need to be a leader who who is willing to have the hard conversation, even though my brother-in-law wants nothing to do with me and I'm not willing to talk to him about it. Why is it that we're so good or more willing to have hard conversations at work when there's job performance on the line, but the core and key relationships in our life with our family and extended family, we're not willing to have them. So every Thanksgiving goes by and there's still stuff shoved under the rug because nobody's dealing with it because no one will step up and lead the hard conversation. We have to be willing to have hard conversations with the family. Am I playing with my family? Am I praying with my family? Do I have a plan for leading my family? So I told you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naturally gifted at leading my family. It's easier for me to lead a church or an organization than my family. So what some people do naturally, others have to do strategically. So one of the things that we've started doing in our house, this is just, you can steal this, isn't it? it's not, there's nothing brilliant about it. We bought everybody the same Bible. We have six copies of the CSB student teen study Bible. We bought six copies because we want everybody to be looking at the same book. So a couple of nights a week, everybody grabs, we keep them right there in the main room, everybody grab their Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5, 
And if nothing happens that night, but we read the Bible and say a prayer and go to bed, I consider it a big win. If I bring nothing, if I'm so empty that night, I bring nothing to the table. I have read scripture. I have showed up spiritually. And we, somebody said a closing prayer over the day. We call this the closer. So we have in our family a text thread of my wife and I and our four kids. And I will say at 6 p.m., I don't know where you are right now because I never know where my teenagers are. But at 9.15 tonight, we're going to have a five-minute closer. And it always goes longer than five minutes. And it always goes better than I think it's going to go. So if you will just show up, guys think they have to have a sermon or some brilliant thought, read the text, make a comment about the text. You know, I think it's really interesting that it says this, and see what the people around your family say. You're leading your family spiritually if you do that. So the other night we did this, and I, I had low expectations because I was zapped. And we went to Philippians chapter 1, and I said, hey, this month we're just going to read through Philippians. And Philippians chapter 1, in the early verses, it says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And my daughter, who's looking for a college, said, you know, I find a lot of courage. I find a lot of encouragement from that verse because I, I sometimes feel like if I choose the wrong college, that God's going to give up on me. And that's, that's a really powerful confession. I'm not saying that you should try to replicate what I do, but I'm saying you need a plan for your family. George S. Patton once said, a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan executed next week. I think there's wisdom in that. The last one is friendship. Every person needs one or two people in their corner that will not quit on them on their worst day. Years ago, I read an article by a famous pastor named Chuck Swindoll. Some of you probably heard of Chuck Swindoll, but it was kind of wisdom for life. And as the question was, what, would, what have you done over the course of your lifetime that makes the difference? And I remember certain, certain things from the article, but this is the one thing that stuck out. He said, cultivate a few lifelong friendships. Keep a couple of people around over the course of your whole life. As you, as you, as you have transitioned from place to place or job to job, Try your very best to keep a couple of people with you along the way. Those become the most treasured relationships in your life. Because I can tell you, I've, res I've resigned two churches now. I was shocked how quickly they moved on from me. And at your job, you're going to be amazed on the day you quit how quickly they replace you. You'll go through a grief process about it. You'll, you'll be surprised how replaceable you were. But if you pour your life into a few people beyond the scope of your family and build meaningful friendship, you're building something that is going to go with you no matter where you go. Health, hobby, family, and friendships. Those are the four buckets that men struggle to fill. Which one are you the weakest at? All right, turn to your neighbor right now and confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. Do it.
All right, take another minute, make sure the other person gets to share, and then we'll, Travis will run Mike again, right, Travis? Stan. All right, guys. Stan is going to run the microphone. Who would be willing to confess one of these buckets is pretty empty and a conviction you have about it? Something God said to you that it's time to put that back in your life. Yeah, I'd say Keith and I, I looked at him and said it was obvious. I mean, friendship for me, I mean, I'm a terrible out of sight, out of mind kind of person. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, I'm thankful for my wife. She's really good at that but I'm horrible at it. So I think that's something I need to grow in for sure. How many men in this room would confess that, that friendship is not normally a priority? It's probably half the room. It's good. Thanks for saying that out loud because there's a lot of guys in the room who relate to that. Somebody else? Man, you guys are amazing. All four buckets are full? That's the best crowd I've ever talked to. I'll just be honest, I'm not really happy I'm sharing right now, um, but I just feel like the Lord wants me to. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I were talking about a week ago and how she's like, well, when's the last time you prayed with the little two uh, before bed? Something that I did with the older two pretty consistently. Hmm. Um, and I'm like, it's been a while. And she's... She's like, well, when was the last time you got on the ground and played with them? And I'm like, it's been a while. And she's, um, and then I've been hearing this whole time, the Lord's just speaking to me in this area that I need to, I need to get back on the ground and play with my girls. And they're 12. And my, my wife asked me, well, why don't you? I'm like, I don't want to. And that's just where my ugly heart has been. And hold me accountable, please, every one of you, because I want to change. Um, hmm. Yeah. It's really good. You know the piece of what you just said that's impressive to me, and I know you're not trying to be impressive. If my wife had said that to me, I would have said, cut me some slack. You know how busy I am? You know how much stuff I got going on? Like, what is it about us? I was talking about a guy to a fellow in the hallway about this. What is it that we have so little patience for our wives, but our coworkers will take a lot of criticism? Uh, I think it's a pride issue. So I, I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged that you said to her, it's been a while. That's the right answer challenges me. Somebody else. Um, Jason, I love you, and I will be glad to hold you accountable. 
I love your family. Thank you for sharing. Um, I know a ton of people in this church and um, very involved in the church. Love and have great conversations and good friendships in this church. But there are men that would go to bat for me if I were to ask them. Hmm. But there are men that I'm not pouring my life into. And so I've just been convicted to start uh, reaching out to friends and uh, to people uh, because right now they're just at arm's length, you know, and I haven't had those conversations to be invulnerable with guys. And um, again, I could probably count 100 men in this church that would probably stick their neck out for me, would go to bat for me, would die for me. Um, but I have not reached out to become a true friend, mm. become vulnerable, uh, and to have that in my life. And uh, it's just one of those things that I've been convicted about. So thank you for bringing this to our attention. That's yep. really good. I, uh, my name is Sai, and you know something you said earlier about being a fisher of men, and and you know you became a, a keeper of at the, the aquarium. aquarium, right? Um, I, I'm definitely afraid sometimes to talk to my family that on the other side are Buddhists and are you know uh, spiritualists. You know, um, in our culture, uh, I don't speak to my elders about faith like I should, and, I, and I'm afraid because of what they'll say and how they treat me, you know what I mean? Um, culturally, I just uh, don't say nothing about my Christianity sometimes, uh, and I know I, I want to, especially with my father. Um, and I, I'm ashamed to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a strong Christian in my bubble, you know, but uh, when, I, when I'm with my, my real family, I shrivel and I'm just scared and I'm afraid, um, you know, because, you know, you love them and you want to share, but it's like, you know, um, you just don't know how to bring that across. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just the guy in the aquarium, you know, just being the keeper of things. And I just really wanted to share that today because, you know, we can, you know, it's so easy and sometimes you forget that you're stuck in a bubble. Yeah. You know what I mean? so, yeah. And I would say this about this church, just knowing a little bit that I do know about this church, 17-year-old church, right? Started as a church plant. There's something about being a church plant that, that draws people that want to reach unchurched people and they want to reach the community. But then you reach this certain point where you have this critical mass and it happens very subtly, but the culture shifts to, okay, we're good. We've reached the community. Look, we're full. And, and, and it actually, you lose the passion to reach the lost. Instead of now we have far more people to reach the community, now we have enough people so we can stop doing that. And it happens very subtly, and it changes the culture of your church. And I, I just want you to be aware of that. Some of you may have been a part of the, ch the church when it was started. Keeping that fervor for reaching sinners and tax collectors is the hardest thing for a pastor to do. So just be aware that it's not only something that happens individually, it's something that happens corporately. That we're just content now that we have a holy huddle. And we no longer have interest in the people who aren't in the room. And that is not the heartbeat of Christ. So being aware of it personally and corporately. We've got a few more minutes. Uh, anybody else? In the back. Yeah. 
so um, my both my kids are adults, and um, since my daughter was uh, little, since 2012, I've been saying that I wanted to do a Bible study within the family, lead my family. Now my daughter's married, and um, as I've got my son-in-law here, and I'm listening to this, I'm saying, you know, um, I keep saying we're going to start one we never have. Um, and the excuses have always been, well, we're busy. We're busy taking care of Tyler. We're busy uh, with a lot of things. And I'm home a lot. Um, my jobs have always afforded me the ability to be home. And I've convinced myself that being home is, uh, well, I'm there. Dad's there, I'm there for my family, but the fact is I'm really not. Because when I'm home, all we do is watch TV. Or um, we, we'll get into conversations, but it usually goes away into something else. And so um, I think with, what's convicting me with the family piece is that uh, I, like probably many guys in here, have convinced myself that time is just tangible. As long as I'm there, I'm giving in to my family, and I'm really not. I'm just coexisting inside the family. And um, I think we all fall to some extent in that category. That's good. Home is a culture, and culture is created by the positive behaviors we celebrate and the negative behaviors we tolerate. It's the best statement I've ever heard on culture. It's created by the positive behaviors we celebrate and the negative behaviors we tolerate. So for me, I am creating a culture when I allow us to watch TV for three hours every night. I'm choosing that. And I'm guilty of it. But the culture is what it is because of me. I am the primary creator of the culture in my home. Me and my wife together. So it takes a lot of humility, like what you just said, to come to the table and realize, okay, what's not right about the culture and what is wrong with me that I'm encouraging that? It's got to start with me. Uh, so I love the fact that you're getting clear about that. I do think television is a massive, and technology altogether, is a massive obstacle we have to overcome and create culture in our homes. And culture is created by the positive behaviors we celebrate and the negative behaviors we tolerate. So in a church, when someone comes to faith in Christ and a church makes a big deal out of it, makes a whole video about their testimony, baptizes them publicly, has a party, they're celebrating what's important. But when one of the elders is allowed to have shady behavior around in their life and it's not addressed, that is just as culturally impactful as celebrating a baptism. It's the positive things we celebrate and the negative behaviors that we tolerate that create culture. So all of us have to look at culture and ask ourselves, what are we celebrating and what are we tolerating and where's the problem? That's a principle at work too. Anybody else? We're about to go eat, but we got time for one more. A bucket. 
I have several empty buckets. Um, Jason, I just wanted to tell you, I, I felt this in my heart last night, I wanted to tell you that you've been a real blessing in my life uh, with growing kids God's way. Um, I need to learn to, like, when God's telling me to speak up from my heart to do so, so hmm. let you know that. Um, friendship, for me, you know, I, I tend, I don't have any strong Christian friends, I would say, and I'm, I'm what, I'll, I'll admit it, I'm a weak Christian, so when I go and hang out with people that aren't Christians, um, I've been told I'm corruptible. Like I, I've told somebody, like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go do that. And uh, they, they've actually told me after I've gone and hung out with them, I end up doing what they want to do. That I'm, I'm corruptible. So I'm weak, and I know that. And I need Christian friends. I, I'm not strong enough to go and eat with the tax collectors because. I'll, I'm, I'll tend to do what they do more than hmm. be uh, like a light for them. But um, this conference is, has been great for me. So That's just good. wanted to say that. Thank you. Yeah. Todd, as, as pastor of this church, would you close uh, this session? I feel like you know where these men are at probably more than I do. Just a prayer for these men and what you sense. Where does this speak to their lives as a pastor? You close this out and then we'll go eat. Let's bow our heads, guys, can we? And as we're bowing our heads, let's bow our hearts. Let's take the posture of humility and submission to our King. Lord, it's easy in this moment to let guilt overwhelm us. What I'm praying for now, Lord, is that there will be proper conviction from your Holy Spirit that would lead to proper action. That's the tension we need from you. I love the fact that Ben has showed us that you do come against our pride and sinful laziness, but not in a spirit of demeaning us, not to cripple us, but to empower us for obedience to the next step. Lord, man-made guilt, false guilt, would love to put us in a corner and say that defines us forever. We're shelved. But Holy Spirit conviction empowers us to see the redemption, the forgiveness, the cleansing that's uh, through Christ and then the obedience that follows. I, I guess what I want to pray, God, is that uh, you will cut through man-made guilt with your Holy Spirit conviction and prompt every man in here for Holy Spirit-empowered action. That for the man who needs to read the Bible with his family, he won't say tonight, I'll do it tomorrow. He will tonight just read a verse. Maybe just take the tip of having a closer. To the man who needs to initiate a conversation with some extended family, a brother-in-law, a sister, a father, a mother, that they'll send a text or something as, hey, can I call you? Maybe they'll call tonight, but some type of action tonight, today, that would open the door for the next step. God, I just pray your Holy Spirit would give men power for this next step. That'd be the first sign that what we are experiencing is Holy Spirit conviction. And God, I'm convinced 
that when we take a need to your kingship and lordship in our life and the Holy Spirit empowers us for action, that, that, that's unstoppable. And so I'm just asking God that you would empower these men for unstoppable action. Not action that we need credit for. We're not looking for status improvement or an increase in our popularity. We don't need to have some kudos or somebody pat us on the back. What's driving us is this conviction and action so that it is pleasing to you. So to that end, I pray in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.